It is the second Saturday in September, and that means it's time for another edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. Good morning, everybody. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. I'll be your host this morning. We haven't talked with you in a while. We missed our August session of Mountain Radio Astronomy. At that time, we were right in the middle of hosting a two-week camp for talented West Virginia high school students. It's called the West Virginia Governor's School for Math and Science. We had, if you can believe it, 55 14-year-olds on the site for two weeks working with our scientists and a group of wonderful teachers that joined us from around the state and the country. We had a great time. We're, we're still missing them now that they're gone. What a great group of youngsters they were. So in any case, we missed our August edition. We're sorry about that. But we're back now and glad to be with you for the September edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Scott Ransom. Uh, Scott is an old friend of ours from Charlottesville, Virginia. He works at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory there. And you might recall that about a year ago, in October of 2005, we conducted an interview with him about pulsars. It was a great interview. You can check it out on our website if you want to hear it again, because today we're going to be talking about a subset of neutron stars some very, very strange objects called magnetars. And Scott has been studying one in particular with the Green Bank Telescope and other telescopes around the world. So we're going to talk to Scott about that. Thanks for being on the program again. Well, thanks for having me, Sue Okay, so why don't we first of all just remind our listeners as to what neutron stars are, and then we'll talk a little bit about these bizarre objects. Sure. So a neutron star is the corpse, if you will, of a, of a massive star after it's gone supernova. So these massive stars, they burn their fuel very, very rapidly. So after only about 10 million years, which is very short, astronomically speaking, they explode into supernova, and the inside of the star collapses to become a neutron star. And uh, what, what we're studying is one of the various flavors that these neutron stars uh, uh, turn out as after after some amount of time, after thousands of years, or tens of thousands, or even millions of years. Uh, and there's, there's quite a wide variety of, of, of flavors of these neutron stars. And the ones that we're looking at are known as, as magnetars. Tell us what a magnetar is. Right, so a magnetar is a, a very rare flavor of neutron stars. So far, in, in the whole galaxy, there's, there's millions of neutron stars floating around. We, we can't detect anywhere near that number because they're incredibly hard to find unless they turn out to be one of these of a, if it, unless they turn out to be a very specific type of object, like a radio pulsar. And so, for instance, radio pulsars, right now we have almost 2,000 known radio pulsars, which have been detected over the last 30 years. But that's nowhere near the million or so neutron stars that there are in the galaxy. Well, magnetars are even much rarer. We, there's only um, a dozen, maybe 15 known magnetars. And what these things are, these are only detected in the X-rays. and there's two subclasses of magnetars. One of them is known as the soft gamma ray repeaters, and the other one is known as the anomalous X-ray pulsars. So they're kind of long, long-winded names. But basically, what these objects are is they're neutron stars that have incredibly strong magnetic field strengths. And so a pulsar already has an incredibly strong magnetic field. The Earth, for instance, has a magnetic field strength that's about it's called uh, about a Gauss, one Gauss. So it's very, very, that, that's a very weak field. Now, obviously, you can't even feel it. A compass needle barely feels it. But on, an, on a, a pulsar, a pulsar has a magnetic field strengths that are, in general, 
about a trillion times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. But magnetars can have magnetic field strengths that are a thousand times stronger than that. So that's a quadrillion times, or uh, that would be 10 to the 15, uh, 10 followed by, uh, or one followed by 15 zeros. So that's a, it's a huge, incredibly strong magnetic field, much stronger than any, any magnetic field you can create here on Earth in a laboratory. How do stars get magnetic fields in the first place? How does a magnetar end up with such right. a strong magnetic field? So that's, a, that's actually a pretty tough question. It's actually part of the, of the theory that's gone into these, the, these magnetars. Some of the magnetic field strength can be, can be created in a relatively simple fashion. Just like I mentioned that the Earth has a, magnet, uh, a magnetic field. And the magnetic field, if you were to look at the Earth, looks very much like probably people have seen pictures of a bar magnet. And they have a North Pole and a South Pole. And you can see there's magnetic field lines when people draw them in diagrams that go from the North Pole to the South Pole. Um, and that's called a dipole magnet. But that's the kind of magnet, uh, magnetic field that the Earth has. And it's also very similar to what stars have, like our sun. So if you take a, a star like the sun, and it has a, has a magnetic field of some strength, and then if you compress that, so you take it from the size of the sun and you compress it beyond the size of the Earth down to the size of a city, which is the size of what a neutron star is, all those lines that make up that magnetic field strength, those get compressed together. And so, and that makes the magnetic field stronger because the more lines you have in a, in a small uh, length, that's the stronger the magnetic field. So you can effectively amplify your magnetic field strength just by when the star collapses into a neutron star. That, that gives you a much stronger magnetic field. But that, we don't think that's enough for the magnetars. So what probably happens is when the magnetar, when, it, when it's created in the supernova, there's incredibly, uh, incredibly large amounts of rotation uh, in these stars. And I, as I mentioned in the last time we talked, when a star is rotating, just like a figure skater pulling her arms in, uh, she spins faster. The same thing happens with these stars. All stars are rotating, and when they collapse in a supernova, they rotate much faster. Well, all this rotation does a whole bunch of weird things in the center, and you can have, uh, you can effectively generate magnetic fields by what's known as a dynamo effect. And this is what's going on actually inside the Earth's core. All the all the molten rock is moving all around there, and it's creating this magnetic field. The same thing is happening in the sun, and you're effectively creating magnetic fields. And just it, by the material in the sun moving around. Yeah, so it's 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 material convecting up from the center that's right, to the and outside and then back down again. That's right, and that motion with material that can carry charged particles and stuff generates magnetic fields. And so it's thought that by some very strange process that uses very rapidly rotating material, and as a neutron star is being formed, you can amplify tremendously the, these magnetic fields and create these 10 to the 15 Gauss magnetic fields. And then that magnetic field strength, is it locked into the, to the neutron star at some later point right. after the well, supernova? You, exactly. So normally it is. And for most pulsars, it's thought uh, a normal pulsar, which has uh, a trillion Gauss magnetic field, 10 to the 12, um, it's thought that those magnetic field strengths stay like that for billions of years. They probably don't decay or change in any way. But the magnetic field strengths in the magnetars are so strong that they cause tremendous amount of stresses onto the crust of the neutron star. And they're so strong that their weird physics begins to happen so that we think that these fields actually decay, decay away over time. And that's actually what makes the magnetars strange, we believe. So most pulsars are powered by their rotation. They're these tremendous flywheels of energy. There's no fusion going on in them, so they're purely powered by the rotation. But magnetars, 
the uh, radiation that we see, which is, like I said, almost exclusively x-rays, if we count up the amount of x-rays we see in, 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 in order to figure out how much energy that the neutron star is putting out, the only way to explain all that energy is not by the rotation, because that's not nearly enough. It has to be coming from the decay of these massive magnetic fields. And so that's what makes these things strange, is that they're powered by their magnetic fields as opposed to the rotation. But that implies a very crucial thing, which is important for some of the observations that we've done recently. That implies that if the magnetic fields are powering these objects, that means they must be changing in time. So the magnetic fields have to be a dynamic, strange place where, where things are changing. And that's exactly what we've seen. So if you were to cut a magnetar in half and look at how it was put together, what, what does it look like? Are there layers in these objects? You mentioned a crust. Right. So the, you can think of the, the, these objects as, uh, as you said, kind of like an onion uh, with, with layers. So the very outermost layer, well, first there's a very thin atmosphere on all neutron stars. And that atmosphere is, a, is only a few millimeters or a centimeter thick because gravity is so strong that it takes every type of atom and effectively turns it into neutrons, except for the very, very top layer. At the very top millimeter or, uh, of layer, you can, you can have metals, for instance, iron. So it, it, this has like a partially iron atmospheres, or there might be a small amount of gas from the, the galaxy that, that happens to fall into these things. But so that's the very outermost layer. But then there's a, a solid crust, solid surface of, of uh, effectively uh, solid neutrons. So it's, it, these are just like a, the nu nucleus of an atom. They're incredibly dense. And what happens underneath there, though, that's where it's getting a bit, a bit tricky. There's a whole bunch of really strange physics that begins to happen because the densities are so high and the temperatures are so high that these neutrons start doing weird things and they form something called a superfluid. And, and even below that, there may be strange forms of, of uh, matter, such as quark material, which is probably unlikely or these things called hyperons. There's a whole bunch of weird types of particles that can be in the center, but we really don't know what, what's happening in the, in the very center of these objects. So do magnetars shine in x-rays all the time? How is it that, that you detect them? Right, so, well, I mentioned that these, the magnetic fields are changing. Well, if they're changing in a very smooth, steady way, then what we would see is just stable x-rays, normal x-rays being given off by these objects. And for some of the magnetars, that's what we do see. But occasionally, they do very strange things. So the magnetic fields somehow change changes rapidly. And that probably ca is caused by stresses building up in the crust of the, of the neutron star because the magnetic field that's inside the star all wound up is trying to get out. And that puts these massive stresses. And so even though this crust is the, way harder than any, anything on Earth, the stresses still build up until it cracks or shifts. And that, that lets the magnetic fields change. And when you move a magnetic field, it causes all sorts of charged particles to move all over it. And incredible plasmas are created. I mean, tremendously energetic processes are, are happening. When that happens, we get flashes of x-rays or flares of x-rays. And so these magnetars over the last uh, 10, 10 or 15 or 20 years have shown these bursts of x-rays or these much stronger long flares of x-rays. And so normally, even if the x-rays by themselves in their stable state aren't bright enough to, to see, when they go into these flare states, our, the x-ray satellites can hone in on them. And then once we know exactly where to look in the galaxy, we can see these objects. And it's through this process that over the course of 20 years that we've identified, uh, like I said, about a dozen or 14 or so uh, magnetars. And how is it that they are known to be magnetars and not just some other x-ray flaring right. event? So once we've identified them and, and we 
And when we take a close look at that stable x-ray emission, most of them have pulsations in x-rays. And so just the same way that we look at radio pulsars over long periods of time, we can look at the x-rays that are pulsing over long periods of time, and we see that the, that the spin rate of the neutron star, because those pulsations come from the spin of the, of the magnetar, we see that they're changing very slowly over time. And there's ways that we can estimate how strong the magnetic field is and also how old the object is from seeing how fast uh, that spin rate is changing. And when we make those estimates, we come out uh, with 10 to the 15 Gauss, that, that extremely large number that I was talking about earlier. Um, and so the, the theoretical picture of how these objects need a very strong magnetic field uh, seems to be sh um, playing out in all the observations that we're getting. Okay. Now, you, you are a part of a team that's studying um, a particular, str even stranger, right. <laughs> magnetar. Tell us about this object. Right. So th this object is called XTEJ1810-197. That's its uh, so-called phone number, if you will. It was discovered by the, uh, the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer, which is an X-ray satellite. And it was detected in, uh, it went into a flare in 2003, just as I was just mentioning. It wasn't known before then, uh, but when it went into this flare, XTE started monitoring it. And it was, uh, we initially found right off the bat, uh, because I was on the initial team that found this in the X-rays, that uh, it was spinning down slowly. And when we calculated it, we saw that it had a very large magnetic field strength. And it had, it, because it had this flare, it completely implied that it was one of these so-called anomalous X-ray pulsars, one of the subclasses of magnetars. Um, so that, that was neat because this showed that there really are transient forms of these objects and, they're, and it probably also implies that um, they're not all shining purely steadily in time. That, and so there's probably a whole bunch of these guys hidden in the galaxy that just haven't flared yet, so we haven't found them. So that was all fine and good. But there was a team at Columbia um, and uh, led by uh, Jules Halpern and with also David Helfand. And they, they observed it in the radio with the VLA, the Very Large Array. And they saw a radio source. Uh, this was about six months after the object went into this flare. And they found a, a, a radio uh, emission from it. This was the first time that steady radio emission has ever been found from any kind of magnetar. And people have looked quite deeply before. Um, but it was pretty strange because they didn't know what to make of the radio emission, and this was in a part of the sky that a very successful group of people had found a, a, a ton of, of uh, pulsars before with the Parkes radio telescope. And if, if this thing was a, a pulsar, a radio pulsar, the Parkes people should have found it as a pulsar, I mean easily, but they didn't. And so what this implied is that somehow that radio emission probably turned on at the same time that the X-ray emission did in that flare. Um, so, but they argued that, that it was probably not pulsations, and they said it was probably due to some other, other, other thing. But then Fernando Camilo, who was, it turns out to be the, the, the leader of this project that I've been working, uh, working on, he observed the object just this, this spring with the Parkes Radio Telescope, and it turns out it's booming in, and it had incredibly strong pulsations. And so, really and truly, the Parkes people should have seen it if it was there before, but it obviously wasn't. So this is some kind of strange transient radio pulsar, just, just as much as it's a transient magnetar. Was this uh, booming radio emission that uh, he detected connected in any way with another X-ray flare or not? No, as a matter of fact, uh, people have very closely studied all the X-ray data on this object now, and it seems like there was this one massive flare, and 
we're still seeing the residual X-ray light from that. It's been slowly fading over time. And so this one X-ray flare, although there have been a few very small bursts, X-ray bursts, but this one big flare has just been slowly dying away. And so it's thought that that big flare somehow injected enough particles into the magnetic field of this object that allowed it to turn on as a radio pulsar. Um, and then we have some further evidence that's, that, that, that this is what's going on be, because we've been monitoring this object with many different radio telescopes around the world. And it's doing things that, that radio pulsars simply do not do. It's, it's changing with time. And radio pulsars in general are very stable. I mean, we use them as precise clocks to, do test, to test all kinds of physics. Um, for instance, most radio pulsars, their pulsation, the shape of their pulsations, is perfectly stable over years, probably hundreds of years, thousands or even millions of years. Um, but this, this pulsar, its pulse profile, or its pulse shape, is actually changing dramatically over the course of a week, uh, which is very strange. The, uh, the strength of the, of the pulsations is changing dramatically on a, on a daily basis. Radio pulsars normally don't, do not do this at all. Um, and the other thing that's very strange about it is that it can be seen at very high radio frequencies. And mostly, for radio pulsars, you have to observe uh, at about the same, at the same radio frequencies that uh, you have a TV station or these, this radio station, for instance. And then the strength of the signal drastically decreases as you go to higher and higher radio frequencies. But this thing is booming in even at incredibly high radio frequencies, higher than we can even observe here at the GBT. I was reading in the in the press release that came out 150 gigahertz or something? That's right, yeah, 140 gigahertz. But it's by far the highest frequency any radio pulsar has been detected. And we used a, a small telescope at, um, in, in Spain in order to, to, to make those measurements. But yeah, it's, it's incredible. So, Are the pulsations variable? You say they're changing they are. quickly, but do they get stronger and then? They do, and, yeah. but unfortunately what it appears like, so, so they're varying stronger and weaker on, on daily timescales. But I mentioned how the x-rays are slowly decaying away. It seems like the radio, the radio source is slowly decaying away also because as we've been monitoring this object over the last three or four months, um, on average, the, the average strength of the pulses are definitely decreasing. And the last uh, times that we observed this, this source with a couple different radio telescopes, including just, the, just this last week with the GBT, um, the pulsar is very weak now, and it's, uh, it takes a big telescope like the GBT to, to, to detect it. When we first discovered it, you could have seen it practically with a satellite dish in your backyard. It was, it was so strong. So it's definitely changing. So what's going on here? We have no idea. <laughs> uh, so I think the basic picture is that um, this, this big x-ray flare caused a crack or something in the crust. That twisted the magnetic field lines. Uh, and that, those twists in the magnetic field lines generated all these particles. And so that filled up the... Uh, if you want, it's called the, the magnetosphere, but you can think of it as just the whole area around the, the, the neutron star. But it filled this area with, with, with particles, and those are causing all this emission. But, but since, there's no, since there wasn't any other crack of the crust to keep, keep these particles going, they're slowly just going away. And so the pulsar is dying. Um, how fast does this pulsar rotate? We talked last time about uh, another big branch of your work, which is measuring pulsars that spin very, very fast, yeah. many hundreds of times right. a second. And um, is this one of those? Is it? No, uh, actually, yes. Yeah, so we've found the fastest pulsars ever spinning before. This is one of the hand, one or two or three of the very slowest pulsars known. 
This spins uh, once every 5.5 seconds. So it's rotating very, very slowly. Uh, well, it's actually, for a star, that's very fast. But, but for a, a neutron star, that's a very slow rotation rate. Yeah. So it's the whole other end of the spectrum from where I'm normally used to studying things. And that actually makes the observations quite difficult as well because they're much more susceptible to interference. Lightning and people starting their cars and all those things really affect uh, a very slow pulsar. So um, do magnetars in general rotate slowly? I think you mentioned a, a little bit earlier that uh, you see sort of pulsed X-ray emission from magnetars. Is that related to their rotation? Yes, that's exactly right. And are they so, slow rotators? Yes, all the magnetars are rotating between about 5 and 12 seconds. Um, so they're all, they all have very, very similar properties in the X-rays. They all have very similar properties with their pulsations. Um, and so this fits right in with, with, with the rest of the group. Uh, the only very strange thing is these really weird radio pulses and the fact that, uh, that this thing was found because it had this massive flare. Last time, uh, we discussed how a pulsar is powered and uh, the rotation of the pulsar is related to its emission That's right. out of its magnetic poles. So if a pulsar were to slow down to uh, a rotation rate of once every five or ten seconds, at that point in time, you wouldn't see it anymore? That's exactly right, yeah. So the slower they rotate, there's less energy that can be taken away from that rotation. And if you're not, if, uh, I mean, the bottom line, what causes this is you move a magnetic field and that creates electric fields. That's, that's basically what's happening. And those electric fields accelerate charges, which will cause the emission. So if you're rotating too slowly, the magnetic field's moving very slowly, you're not creating a very strong electric field, and you're not accelerating charges very, very, very fast. And so the radio emission mechanism, however exactly it works, because we don't know exactly how it works, but that shuts down at some point in time. And so a lot of people, they had looked at these magnetars very deeply in the radio looking for pulsations, and they'd never seen anything. And one of the explanations was, hey, they're just rotating so slowly that there's no pulsations. But we now know that if you can get enough charges in there and particles in there, they can show radio emission. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that uh, magnetars were at one time pulsars? Well, that's, a, that's actually a very interesting question because people actually don't know, for instance, which comes first. Do you, know, do you have a magnetar? Does it turn into a pulsar? Do you have a pulsar that can somehow turn into a magnetar? You know, how old are these things? These are questions we're trying to unravel. But what we think right now with the best evidence is that it appears that all the magnetars are very young. There's ways of estimating their ages. Matter of fact, some of them happen to be located inside of supernova remnants. So given that, we can estimate the ages of supernova remnants. We think these things are, are maybe 10,000 to 100,000 years old, most of them. So astronomically speaking, those are very young objects. If that's the case, then what probably happens is these things are born, some small fraction of neutron stars when they have a, a supernova, are born with these very strong magnetic fields. And when they have their such strong magne magnetic fields, they live their first 100,000 years or as a, as a magnetar until eventually their magnetic field decays away, you know, because that's what's powering these X-ray emissions. So it, it, it occasionally gets, gets weaker and weaker until 
it dies off as a source altogether, and you have a dead neutron star just, just floating around in space. It's rotating too slowly to emit as a radio pulsar, and it has it doesn't have a strong enough magnetic field to emit, to emit as a as an X-ray magnetar anymore. So it's just a, a dead neutron star floating through space. We think. That's great. You know, you found out a lot just from this one one object out of all the billions of objects that are out there in the Milky Way. Well, it's you know it's a stepping stone because this. This radio emission was a very neat new thing that showed us a lot about the way the magnetic fields of these objects work. But a lot of the stuff that I've been discussing is, is the way a lot of science works. It's been based on huge numbers of measurements by many different groups using vast different, vastly different telescopes. Um, so a lot of the basic picture of the magnetars came about from ten, the last 10 years of X-ray uh, observations. But this new radio observation in a completely different um, energy regime has really confirmed a lot of these these views and, and actually allowed us to probe it in new ways. And so that's kind of the neat thing about it, in my opinion. Definitely. Well, thanks for joining us this morning to tell us a little bit about uh, what's the name of it again? <laughs> XDE J1810 minus 197. You guys have to come up with some better names yeah, for your true. objects, especially this one. This is so unique. I just call it the Magnetar, and my group knows what, what we're talking about. That's so. right. Well, thanks so much. Sure. Thank you. And that's about all we have for mountain radio astronomy today. As we sign off, though, I'm going to leave you with a little snippet of Green Bank Telescope data. This is about 30 seconds of a recording from this magnetar that Scott told us about this morning. You'll notice a steady hiss in the background. That's receiver noise. But listen carefully. Once about every five seconds, you'll hear another noise on top of that steady hiss. And that is the signal, the radio signal, sweeping by the Earth from this pulsar as it rotates once about every five seconds. Hope you enjoy it, these strange sounds from space. I'll be back with you next month for another edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy.